at Pearson, the world's learning company, we're all about supporting lifelong learning. And as we all know, one of the best ways to learn is from each other. That's why we asked almost 7,000 teachers and senior leaders in England about schools today and what their future should look like. In our brand new Pearson School Report, you'll discover what they had to say on the topics that matter, from the barriers to learning that we need to break down, to evolving what students learn and how. Whether you're looking for a different perspective or to spark new ideas, there's something in the report for you. Read more at go.pearson.com forward slash the school report and join the conversation on social media with the hashtag Pearson School Report. The staff would get it way worse than players and that's why the staff turnover is so high and I'm surprised the RFU have allowed that to continue for as long as they did because it's kind of like negligence in my opinion. I never thought I'd be leaving there so when it happened, it was kind of like in the way it happened. When you've been somewhere so long, I think you kind of deserve a certain amount of respect and stuff. And I didn't think I got that very much. So, You know, you hear about the Welsh passion and the Irish passion, how much they wanted to be England. You know, I had so much passion and love for the England shirt. I hated everyone else. He knew I was a grafter and, um, you know, he, he knew and I knew he knew because other coaches or people tell me he knew how much playing for England meant to me. Hello and welcome to the Olympic Mindset. Join us as we explore stories from elite individuals and learn what it takes to be a leader. The Olympic Mindset Podcast welcomes you to a network of inspirational individuals and signposts what it takes to succeed. We will take this opportunity to map the mindset of Olympium and apply these learnings to each of us. Thanks for joining me at the Olympic Mindset Podcast. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Olympic Mindset Podcast. This is our very first two-parter. And it's with the England and Harlequins fullback, Six Nations winner and Premiership winner, Mike Brown. Mike is England's most capped fullback of all time, winning the RBS Six Nations three times. His abrupt exit from Harlequins and his controversial exit from the England setup left a lasting impression on him. Mike talks with honesty about what it was really like to play under England's most successful men's rugby coach of all time, Eddie Jones. In part one of this week's episode, we hear what it takes to be a professional rugby player, the lasting impact of the toxic culture under Eddie Jones, and how Mike has developed his understanding of a real high-performing culture since representing the Barbarians. If you enjoy the Olympic Mindset Podcast and would like to hear more from our amazing guests, join us at theolympicmindsetpodcast.com and sign up for more content. Please remember to like or subscribe wherever you receive this podcast completely free of charge. It really helps. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Olympic Mindset Podcast with the fantastic Mike Brown. Before today's episode begins, I wanted to take a moment of your time to talk to you about our latest partner. Today's episode is brought to you by ClassVR from Avantis Education. 
ClassVR is an award-winning all-in-one VR and AR system for schools. It's designed specifically to help raise student engagement and increase knowledge retention. I was first introduced to ClassVR back in 2017 when I was a deputy head teacher, and it provided me with creating exceptional learning environments. And it has done for more than 1 million students in over 100,000 classrooms in 90 countries across the globe. ClassVR is unique in that it was designed from the ground up solely for education. Headsets are classroom ready with everything an educator needs to deliver fully immersive VR and AR learning experiences to their students. And with thousands of curriculum led resources, your children can walk with dinosaurs, hold a beating heart in their hands or travel the world without leaving the classroom. Now, regular listeners will know that I'm a passionate educator and I'm lucky enough to have experienced class VR firsthand in my classroom. And I can't tell you how wonderful it was to witness when my students were truly engaged in their learning. ClassVR empowers teachers to inspire the leaders of tomorrow. If you're interested, visit classvr.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Hi, Mike. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Um, Yeah, feeling good and uh, good to chat to you. So thanks for having me on. No problem. Thanks for joining us. So obviously, it's a pleasure to speak to yourself. Highly, highly successful rugby player amazing career and now you're in your transition period you're studying your masters you're looking for new opportunities it's a really exciting point for you how does that feel yeah it feels good like you said it's exciting um I'm actually like I'm not fully retired or fully transitioned yet like I could still play would still um want to play if the right opportunity came up yeah so I've actually potentially got a playing opportunity come up so I'm training with um Leicester Tigers I trained with them on Wednesday this week um, and then doing three days next week with the the hope and um, of getting something offered at the end of that week because they need some cover, um, especially while the England boys are away and they've got a few injuries. So Richard Wigglesworth, who I obviously know from playing against him at Saris and 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 um, with his time and my time with England, um, I reached out to him knowing that they needed some cover. Um, and he's um, given me the opportunity to come in. So I've done that this week and next week, and we'll see where that takes us for kind of a short-term uh, gig. So that'd be interesting. Another chance to get into a, another different environment, which would be great learning for me um, for where I want to go anyway. Um, but yeah, before that, it was kind of been nine months of looking at the transition stuff and um, working on my master's and uni stuff and um, connecting with people and trying to get into different environments and, been been keeping myself busy because um, like I said to you before um, that just wanted to meet things head on you know we've all got to go trans- through transition at some point and um, you know athletes that happens to everyone at some point so just taking it head on and, and um, yeah just trying to work hard because I believe if you work hard then opportunities will come up eventually even though it is tough and up and you have the ups and downs <laughs> Yeah, and, and to be fair, Mark, you had your first share of, of ups, didn't you? So it's just about how you ride the this transition period now. And and this really short space of time we've got to know each other as well. It's, it's remarkable to me to hear, A, how open-minded you are to your transition, and B, how positive you are as well. I think that's a really good mental place to be. Yeah, I mean, like I said, you do have the down moments where I have the, the negative moments, and my wife has to take that on, you know. And she snaps me out of it and we have good conversations whether we need to talk about the good stuff. So then you have a realisation that there has been good stuff over the last nine months and how far I've come. Or just to give me a clip around here and say, get on with it. Um, it's all good. It'll be good in the end. Um, 
but yeah, it, it's I, I've definitely tried to with this transition be really open minded to any opportunities that come my way. Um, for example, this podcast, you know, if someone reaches out and wants to talk to me, then you know, I can't understand why they want to talk to me, but <laughs> and um, yeah, um, you know, you get that imposter syndrome, all that sort of thing, but yeah, just trying to really lean into get out of my comfort zone with opportunities and taking on all opportunities that um, I've been lucky enough to have come my way over the last nine months, whether it be meeting someone or doing things like presentations, which I hate doing, but um, it's a big development area, but trying to lean into that or, um, yeah, getting into environments or having invitations to do things. So, yeah, just um, just trying to just trying to be as open-minded as, as possible and really broaden my horizons as well by getting in across all different sports and not just t- staying in the comfort zone of my of my own sport really i'm really surprised by the way to hear that you suffer from imposter syndrome because you know the image that you portrayed as a player you're almost a bit of a mr angry really weren't you you know super confident super aggressive super competitive so for me i guess my question would be was that just the sheer will to win or did you have to give yourself that headspace to perform at that level yeah i don't know like yeah like in terms of imposter syndrome and nerves and I'm quite a shy, introvert person at heart, so I really suffer with that. Um, hate, you know, standing up in front of people and talking. I hate going into the room and, and being centre of attention. You know, that's not me at all. I like to go into rooms and kind of, you know, be in the background, just kind of see what's going on. And you know, big groups make you know can make me feel a bit apprehensive and things like that, um, especially at the start. So, yeah, that's 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 not really what I'm about. Um, but it's, I think since a young age, the, the rugby has been kind of my safe space to be a different way. And in that different way, kind of allowed me to get the best out of myself. Um, in terms of my rugby, yeah, super competitive is probably one of my strengths. It's probably something that anyone that's um, played alongside me or maybe even against would say. Um, talking about Leicester opportunity, you know, I trained with them on, on Wednesday and that was the first thing that we got up and said to the group was, you know, um, he's, I'm probably one of the most competitive players that he's played alongside and played against. So, you know, that was a, a strength of mine. But yeah, I just, I loved the fact that I could step over the the white line in, into the into the field and just switch into a different kind of mode, um, kind of game mode and be ultra competitive, you know, come across confident, be aggressive, be physical, Um and that's what I loved about rugby, really. Um, and my dad used to say to me as well, it's kind of the opportunity to put on a, a waistcoat and, and um, be a different way. So put on that waistcoat, you feel confident, you can be a certain way. And, and then also following off, that just allow me to get the best out of myself on the field as well. Did you find by putting on that waistcoat and, and by acting confident, you actually did become more confident in yourself? Yeah, I think I think... Once I was that way and it kind of showed a bit of success to myself and, you know, helped my performance and, you know, the further I got in my career, you know, starting out at Quinns in the academy, you you get that uh, reward back and then getting into first team, you get that reward back. The more you get those things back from being a certain way that's showing success um, for you individually, I think the more confident you become, um, but the problem is people think that, that you're like that in everyday life, um, <laughs> which isn't always good when I'm that being that sort of confrontational, um, 
you know, like you said, can come across really confident. People think you're like that in real life. And then when you're in a room with a big group of people and you're not that way or people come up to you and you're not that way, they're kind of a bit like, oh, that's a bit strange sort of thing. So um, I do get a lot of comments that, oh, you were very different to what we what we thought you'd be like. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it is, um, it's good. It's good that, that a sport, and I think that shows the strength of sport, that it allows you to go out and, be a different way, show a different side of yourself. Um, can, if you're, I guess, shy, introvert person, can allow you to be something different when you might have your nerves and apprehension in, in other walks of life and that kind of can affect you negatively. Uh, it shows the power of sport that you can help, you helps build your confidence or you can show a different side to yourself. I agree with that, Mike. And obviously we're both dads, you know, a big, big, part of me being a parent is I want my children to experience as many sports as possible not necessarily because I want them to go on to play for England or my wife's English and they're English so they could play for England or Wales to represent their dad you know I I just want them to have the experience of being part of a team of learning to support a teammate to work and to cover somebody and I think my children experiencing sport that will probably hopefully put them in really good stead when they're going for jobs or entering into the field of work when they're older Oh yeah, definitely. You know, sport, any sport teaches so much about um, teamwork, about working with people from all walks of life, um, you know, even different genders and backgrounds and ethnicities and all that sort of thing. Um, You know, sport can be so powerful with that, but also things like resilience and um, working hard, because I'm a big believer in resilience and working hard and what that can create for you um yeah and all those sort of things that it, but it also gives you so much enjoyment which is so powerful as well and i think you get if when you're in elite sport you get lost um and so insular about certain things that you forget about the enjoyment i think sometimes definitely learn the power of enjoyment my recent um experience with the barbarians with uh, scott robertson who's from um, crusaders and how powerful that can be Talk us through that. What was that like playing for those guys? What, what was different between, you know, that kind of game and playing for England or... or yeah, well, with, with him as the head coach, like um, anyone knows rugby, he comes with a um, big reputation and, he, you know, you know, he was... He had that reputation for me and I was really excited to, to go and meet him and he didn't... Um, he didn't disappoint, you know, his way... The way he can connect with people was like nothing I've ever experienced. It was like within a few hours it's like you've known him for ages the way he um got everyone connected within the group and in different ways you know from the you know most experienced confident guys to the guys that are maybe a bit shy and a bit younger or you know could offer different things to the group the way you could bring everyone in and get them connected um the way he allowed you to express yourself on the field and, and he would call it being brave um which i loved um you know just being brave with how you are physically, but also your decision making, and you just felt like you were backed by him to express yourself, um, which was amazing. But then, you know, just the way the enjoyment side of the barbarians was so powerful to then doing the job on the field because it wasn't like we were just there um, having a crack all the time. You know, once we were there in meetings or on the training field, even though training was very uh, um, light and um things like that and then into the games like these games were full blown premiership standard games we were playing against 
first team Premiership players because they they were staying um, prepared for their next Premiership game because they'd missed out obviously on the um, Wasps or Worcester games. So these were full blown games, and we we were we were prepared mentally for that. Like as barbarians, they very much told us. Um, you know, we're expected to win. We're the Barbarians. We've come with this history and tradition. So we were fully aware of that. But then we had great enjoyment and good crack off the field as well, which is what the Barbarians is, is all about. And then it was all about sort of flicking the switch at the right time. So, but just things like playing music and we were singing at half time. I think we might have seen on social media. That was from the Northampton game, which I wasn't involved in, but it was the same for us. You know, we're walking in the stadium with this... Um, you know, music player on the lads had the um, responsibility of doing that. Um, you know, full blast playing music and people look at us like, what, <laughs> what the hell is going on here? Like we're walking in, you know, some lads are dancing or, you know, things like that. And, um, you know, we had it in, on the change room or we're singing or, you know, it was like a rave at some points in the game. Whereas usually it's like, you know, you're so like focused or concentrating on your job. And I think that just was so powerful going into the games, you know, we, we were relaxed, but, you know, wanted to win. Um, we could express ourselves and we just, yeah, we just loved it. Joining each other's company on off the field, you know, it, it's friends for life as well with those people who created such amazing memories over a couple of weeks. Um, yeah. And the games were, were awesome as well. Like we were beating Quinns on about 55 minutes and then, there was a lot of us in these teams without rambling on too much that in the team that hadn't played for a long time. So for me, I hadn't played in seven months. You know, there was guys from Worcester and Worcester hadn't played for a few months. So our legs fully went on about 55 because we're running from everywhere. Quinns are playing like Quinns. Um, and then we offloaded the bench and they ended up pumping us. But um, it was a great occasion. And then Bath, we, we won in the last seconds with a drop goal, which was unbelievable. Um you know, it was, a, it was a back and forth game. Um, it was a bit less jue like the Quinns game was more physical because of the, the conditions, um, but also the way Bath play. But we were happy with that. You know, we did our jue bit and then, you know, met them head on physically and then got the last minute drop goal, which was just perfect for the end of the 10 days that I was with them. Um, and then you know, there's pictures and clips of us just, you know, all like, jumping on each other and just loving every minute of it. It was, it was an amazing experience. Probably up there was one of the best experiences I've had in in, uh, in rugby. Um, so, yeah, I loved it. Having rattled off your successes and read through all of the cups and awards and different things you've won, it's crazy to hear that that couple of weeks or whatever it was you spent with Barbarians, you know, not being part of it, but going in, you know, and, and not knowing the guys before. You've immersed yourself in the culture so quickly and you've enjoyed it. And, you know, I can't, we can't talk about culture and happiness and success without talking about your time with Eddie Jones. I mean, what's the big difference there? I think looking back now, at all my experiences, including that, I think it's in elite sport, it's getting the balance between a high performance environment and then the healthy environment, um, which isn't easy. I've not led a performance environment, hopefully in the future, but I haven't yet. So it's easy for me to say, but I think that's where you know, I look like in my time with Eddie, you know, he was unbelievable in terms of his experience, his coaching, his, his delivery, his detail. Um, and that's coaching and also the high performance environment, high performance side of the environment he, he creates. Like it was an eye opener when he first came in, which I loved. I loved the intense sessions bouncing from thing to thing and intense and 
um, the fittest I would probably would have ever been. Definitely would have ever been actually. Um, loved the phys- physical side of the of the sessions. But, but how were things on the mental side? As you've probably noticed, I'm very interested in underpinning and challenging my approach using research. Now, there are lots of great sources out there to read, but two that have really been both interesting and useful in shaping my strategic thinking are the Pearson School Reports. Following the conversations from the 2022 edition, the brand new Pearson School Report 2023 is here. They've asked thousands of us teachers and 1,000 students about school life in England today and what the future should look like, from the barriers to learning that we need to break down to how teachers and students are leading the way and pioneering genuine change. If you're a teacher or leader working in the profession right now, there's something in the report for you. Read more at go.pearson.com forward slash the school report and join the conversation on social media using the hashtag Pearson School Report. I can honestly say that this report has really helped to shape my thinking around the challenges I will face over the next three to five years. I hope you find this report as useful as I did. If you did, let me know via social media or LinkedIn. If you did, let me know. Back to the episode. That's the thing. It was It was almost, especially in those camps where you're there 24-7, they were just, in my opinion, too intense. So like, you end up kind of yeah. hiding in your room and... People don't. I think people think we go to these nice Pennyhill Park Hotel, five star spa hotel, and you're just there, you know, maybe chuck a ball around for an hour, and then you're in the spa for the rest of the day. But these camps are like b- brutal, full on mental, physical. Like you, you leave that. The longest we're together is eight weeks for Six Nations, and you leave that <laughs> after that eight weeks, just like just sapped mentally, physically. Um, and then you've got to go straight back to your club but um, yeah it's tough and you're up from I don't know like 7am till I was, apart from maybe 45 minutes at lunchtime when you get to go back to your room you're, you're out you're out doing stuff till about I would say sometimes like 9pm because you've got meetings in between you like I said you're, you're expected to do your recovery and rightly so and then you need to do your learn your detail and, and your moves and your patterns and the plays you're going to do that week and what's your role in that. And then you need to look at the opposition or you need to look at what you did in training. You need to review um, what you did in the last game. Um, you need to back, go back over your notes from from the meetings you've had. You might have one-on-one with the coaches. You might be meeting other players in um, similar position groups to go through things. Um, you're looking at your schedule for the next day and make sure you know exactly where you're supposed to be. Um, and what you're doing and then you've got physio in that and um, maybe you've got rehab sessions and fitting that into your oh, it's, it's it's non-stop um, so I think I think it's just like a yeah like I'm kind of rambling on a bit but it's getting that balance and um, making those environments not as intense I think um, well as an introvert as well it must have been exhausting for you to be <laughs> In, in, in that environment as much as you were. What was the social side of things like for you then? Yeah, the, the best um, social we would have probably after big wins or at the end of campaigns was very much where we tried to let our hair down. Um, some more than others, obviously. Like, I'm not a big drinker and things like that, but, um, yeah, those were probably the best. You know, like, um, after we won the Sixth Nation, the Grand Slam, we had a good good night out after that. And rightly so, because it was such a big achievement. Um, in during a campaign, it's more like so we have 
two weeks of what are called fallow weeks where there's no games on the weekend, but we're still in camp and we do like three or four really hard days. And then in there, they'll they'll structure some kind of social element, whether it be, you know, going bowling or something and getting to teams and do that kind of bit of force fun. But it's, it's, it's good crack. You can spend time with guys and kind of take your mind off rugby for a minute. Um, or we'd have things where we'd split into like player groups or backs and forwards and you'd go to different local pubs or restaurants and do that together. Um, but that was kind of like, they were like, you, you can have a drink or something like that, but you kind of in the back of your head, you're thinking, well, no one's going to drink because you've got training the next day and it's a bit like, yeah. yeah. So you have that element of it. I don't believe you can get to the absolute peak of your, profession without really really committing to it and I think some people can get away with drinking and socializing do you feel that you got the most out of your ability I was never the most talented I was never the most skillful physical um you know in the gym or testing or anything like that like I'm not massive I'm not super quick I'm you know not super powerful like some of these unbelievable athletes especially you get young lads coming through now my thing was maximizing myself like you said like making sure I tried to work as hard or harder than anyone else. Being the most competitive, like we spoke about before, is probably a strength of mine, especially on, you know, on the field or in games, you know, out-competing people. I think you've been a bit harsh on yourself there, Mike. As a Welshman, I'm saying this. You did the basics exceptionally well. That was my thing, yeah, definitely was, was making sure I did my basics unbelievably well. The thing, I think for me, everything that was good about my game came off hard work. Like, like so one of the strengths, you know, people would know about me is is my high ball. When I was in the academy, I wasn't, you know, it was hit and miss where I catch a high ball. And one of the coaches there, and I'm very thankful for that, Andy Friend, who was our head coach at the time, Australian guy now at Connaught. He took me aside and said, look, mate, you're not going to play first team rugby here if you don't sort your high ball out because that's the fullback's job. Um, so very quickly, I was, uh, you know, understood exactly what was what was um, required of me, and a hundred percent agreed with him. So, you know, it was up to me then, and my responsibility to go and get that get that done and sorted out if I wanted to play first team, which I was desperate to do. So, what I do, I went and got the best high ball catcher in in uh, in in the squad, which was which was lucky that he was unbelievable at it because he was from Gaelic football background, Irish. Irish player, Irish international, Gavin Duffy. And he was the fullback at the time as well. So I wanted his spot. So I took him aside and said, mate, can you teach me how to catch a high ball? Um, and um, good on him. He did that one-on work um, with me. Um, you know, and we would spend hours doing high ball, starting with base, literally basic. He would stand five metres away from me, throw up a ball, and I was just stood there catching um, ball after ball doing you know a couple of technical points that he gave me which I still use to this day um and just spent ages doing that and now you know of that hard work it's now a strength of mine one thing people said to me earlier on my career was my, my speed and power wasn't good enough um I think it was probably more the way I ran I ran a bit weird a bit hunched over didn't look quick didn't look aesthetically pleasing I probably still don't but I look better than I did so that was the feedback, mainly from England, when I was desperate to play for England. That was the feedback I was getting. I wasn't quick enough. Um, so what I do, I went and found the best person around to to sort that out, who was Margot Wells, who had been training, Danny Cipriani, um, Paul Sackey, Andy Gummersall, um, people like that. 
and Andy Cumsall, luckily again at the time was at um, at Quinns, and he he said I should go and see her as well because he knew I was that I was getting that feedback, and I kind of been putting it off, and then it kept coming. So went to see her and just worked hard with her, and I've been training with her. Um, probably how long we've we playing? I had about a twenty year career, so probably about seventeen years now. You know, even training with her this week, you know, off the back of that Leicester opportunity, getting back training with her. So, um, and that helped my game massively with that speed and power and beating players. Um, so I think what I'm trying to say is like, I, I took responsibility when I was getting certain feedback of going out and working on all those things and ultimately end up being, giving me the career I've had by allowing me to improve certain aspects of my game, which became kind of super strengths as, as Conor Roche, um, our Quinn's director of rugby would call it. Um, uh, yeah, you know, you know, making your strengths super strengths. The title of the podcast is the Olympic Mindset Podcast, but over the, the last few seasons, we've started to branch out and speak to other people like yourself, because obviously this Olympic mindset of being successful in whatever your field is applies to everyone. And what you've touched on there is a really common concept amongst athletes, which is if you have a weakness, take feedback and go and act upon it. Don't think one day you'll be older, so you'll be better. You need to look at your faults and go and work on that. So as a little bit of a segue now, who was the best manager that you played under and what was it about their leadership style that got the best out of you? I think probably Conor O'Shea. I think collectively and individually, that is as well. I think, um, so he came in... Um, in around, when was it, 2000, 2009, I think. And he was perfect for, for he was exactly what we needed at that time. So Dean Richards had come in before that, you know, when we got relegated um, at Harlequins and toughened us up, which is exactly what we needed. We were a bit of a soft club, you know. Harlequins, love the champagne rugby, you know, play, wear the nice, colourful uh, rugby shirts, which everyone kind of knows. But we weren't tough. We were just a bit soft. And um, he came in and toughened us up in, in his old school way, which is exactly what we needed. But then, unfortunately, things happened and he, he had to, to leave Quinns. But then Connor coming in was exactly what we needed. Um, he built a culture um, that we needed. He built, built the environment which we needed, the, the identity. He gave us our identity, um, which included being tough as well as our playing identity, which is still today what you know Quinns are for. Sorry to interrupt, but how was that communicated and how was that implemented? Because a lot of people listening to this podcast, mate, are leaders or in leadership positions. And quite often we're trying to get our message across and instill it and embed it. And it sounds like that was done really well. So reflecting on that, how was it communicated to you and how was it rolled out and implemented across the squad and, and still exists as part of the identity today? Yeah, so in terms of the playing style, um, we kind of we had like a team day where we all sat in a room and we'd get into groups and we'd feedback what we thought Harlequins was all about. Um, and then we looked at kind of the words that kept coming up and that became, I think it was like four words. Do you know what? I, can't even, I couldn't even tell you now. It's been so long. My memory's not great, but what they were, which you know, led, then led to our playing identity. I think it was like tempo, so high tempo, which we see in Queens now. So playing at high tempo, no one could live with us when we did that. It was, um, it was, you know, I can't even remember. <laughs> it's bad I can't remember. Did he use senior players to roll this out? At that time, I don't know if we had many, if I'm honest. 
Um, we had senior players, but I don't know when he when he came in. We had a very young group with a few experienced players like Nick Evans, Nick Easter, who kind of slotted in around us. But we had loads of guys, and this is why it was special at the time. We had loads of guys that come through the academy together. Me, George Robson, Chris Robshaw, Jordan Turner Hall, Danny Kerr didn't really come through the academy, but he was of that age and got bought. He got um, signed on at, at that academy age. Um, so he was in there. Ugo Monia come through the academy, so he was a bit older, but you know, st- still kind of in in our group. Um, people like that. So, so we had that core group of real young, hungry Harlequins players who knew a certain way, and then they filled in the gaps with these experienced players, which is exactly what we needed. Um, George Lowe as well in there. Um, David Strettel was of that age, but didn't come through academy. Uh, Tom Williams, people like that. So we had a, a really good, hungry squad of players, but we just needed some direction with our playing identity. So that with our playing identity, we were we became so confident in that we went out and put that on the field. We we knew that no one could beat us, and we had that confidence. We were like, look, everyone knows what we're going to do but we're too good. We're not, you're not going to beat us. So we had that kind of swag and confidence. Um, but then on the flip side, in terms of our values and um, work ethic and things like that, we didn't have that when Connor came in. So he just used things like group punishment really. And, but in the right way. So he, we, we, and he expected certain standard, which started with him, but then we expected that as well, you know, in terms of our discipline or work ethic, um, and if we didn't show that in training at the end, you know, say for example, we were giving away too many penalties, we'd have to do certain fitness or whatever to ingrain that it's not good enough. And then, but not just doing it, explaining the reasons why and the implications it had on our game. So we had poor discipline, which was costing us points in a game or, you know, the momentum was shifting games, which lead to tries. And that, that's why we lost. And then that um, discipline then led into off the field stuff so you know are you doing the right recovery and um hydration tests and things like that i remember one time you know we, we used to have these hydration tests which you had to do in the morning basically pee in, a, in um in a test tube and then they would test it to see how hydrated you were ready for training because that's important right but lads would go <laughs> would go in pee in it and it would be of a color that's not hydrated and then fill it up with water <laughs> He found out about this and obviously he's trying to create a disciplined environment which would then feed into the games because our discipline wasn't good in games either. Found out about this. He kind of at the end of the session, pulled us all in. He was like, right, it's come, you know, I've been made aware of what's happening with these hydration tests. You know, anyone would like to own up? Obviously no one owned up. So it was like, right, everyone on the line, we're going to do these things called Heady Mullers, which is basically, I don't know if you've heard of, I think you you run the length of the field then you run the diagonal length and then diagonal it's it's horrible it's hanging and we had to do we had to keep doing this until someone owned up no one owned up so we just kept doing it and it'd be one of them where they'd be like right do four so you did four of them stop you think you're done right do another one stop do another one and you just keep doing you never know when the ending's going to come um but you know it was a great it was great for us at the time because you know it made us understand there's consequences to this poor discipline. And it was probably good team bonding as well. Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. Looking back at the teams you've played with then, which is the best team you've played in and why? 
that would be one of them. The the Premiership winning 2012 team because of the environment we had. We were all like mates. And even if you weren't mates, you had real respect for the guy next to you and what he brought to the team and, and his impact on the team and his job. Everyone had respect for each other and everyone knew where each other fit in. Everyone knew what the other person kind of needed emotionally or, you know, physically or, you know, on the field or off the field. Um, so that one, and it was so fun, like the, the style we played, the way we won the Premiership, that final, you know, everything leading up to the final on the day and the way we won it and everything that came after with the celebrations and then the people, the special people that I won with, because like I said, we'd grown up together and the memories we created there. And then the other one would be probably uh, the two, 2016 England Grand Slam winning team um, because it was a group that were hungry because of how 2015 World Cup went. Um, there were some unbelievably amazing players in there, you know, like Mauro, Owen, um, Rob Shaw, Danny Kerr, Ben Youngs, who's now, you know, most cap player ever. Uh, people like that. Um, you know, how hard we worked on the training field and what we did to teams, you know, made them feel so uncomfortable with our work ethic, our physicality, you know. Um, I loved those games because we really went after teams um, physically, um, really stuck it to people like the Welsh and the Irish and <laughs> going to them, had amazing wins. Um, yeah, so that, that, those two teams um, would probably stand out for me. Yeah. And to be fair, you did have a lot of success there. I mean, looking back at England career as well, there was a, a, an awful lot of success. And I know there was obviously a bit of a downward trajectory for you and a bit of a breakdown between you and Eddie. What do you think What do you think the start of that breakdown in relationship was? Or, or was there never really a good relationship? I think the relationship was, um, he would tell me what to do and I would go and do it. That was, you know, I would, he knew I was a grafter and, um, you know, he he knew and I knew he knew because other coaches or people tell me he knew how much playing for England meant to me. Um, yeah. Like it was everything. I loved it. Like everything about playing for England and pulling on that white jersey and I wanted to show in every every time I took the field how much it meant to me. Like it's it, it was amazing. Loved it. I just wanted to give everything for that shirt. Um you know, you hear about the Welsh passion and the Irish passion, how much they wanted to be England. It was the same for me the other way around. Like I, you know, I had so much passion and love for the England shirt. Hated everyone else. Only on the field though, obviously. Like I wanted to beat everyone else so much. So they were trying to take away everything from 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 the English team. So that for me was personal. So I wanted to, you know, stop that happening. Um so yeah, with, with me him, it was, it, that was the kind of relationship we had. Um, do you think he took advantage of that passion and that willingness to do anything to be there? I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say without without speaking to him. I think he was fully aware of what I was like as a person, a bit of a warrior and things like that. So when he was sending those messages that he would send, and I can give some examples, he would know, I'm sure how much impact that would have on someone like me who's a warrior. And as soon as I read something, you know, worrying about what it, what does it mean? What, you know, what, what does he mean by that? Oh no, you know, am I not going to get picked? And do I need to do something else? And, you know, all this stuff's going in my head for any normal person. But I think someone who 
who is a real warrior like me would be able to relate to that. So what kind of stuff did he say to you to pick at that insecurity? So, so the example, so I, I, I was playing in a game for Harlequins against Saris, which is obviously a massive game. It was at Wembley, I think, because it was their kind of equivalent of the big game. You know, playing against Saris came with the, the local rivalry, but also positionally there was a lot of rivalry. So like me and Alex Good, for example, um, you know, uh, Billy Vinopolo and Nick Easter, you know, there was there was lots of competition and rivalry in terms of that. So it was a huge game and he's, he's going to know that. So <laughs> there's a moment in the game, we're losing, but not by a lot. There's a moment in the game, I make a good line break and then I get tackled I think I tried to offload stupidly. And he, like, I, I know when I've made a mistake, you know, sometimes you, you, you do that. As long as it's not effort-based, I think, you know, sometimes that happens as long as you learn from it. And I, I made a mistake. <laughs> and then we end up losing anyway. So then I, this is what I'm like as a person. I always think about those mistakes after a game. Like, I don't even take on board the good stuff I might have done. It's literally like, oh, I did that error and made that mistake. Oh, you know, that's not good enough. And I'm thinking about that. And then, you know what it's like when you, well, people will know what it's like after a game, you'll go and turn your phone on and look straight away at your phone because that's the generation we're in now. And Eddie Jones pops up and I'm like, oh, no. Literally the first thing I see after that game, sat in a changing room, we've just lost to our rivals. I know I've made an error. Is minute 54 point whatever it was. So, um, line break, blew it. That was it. And I'm like it's not what I need at that time. Well, it's not going to help, and particularly if he knows you as well. Yeah, you just he, he would know that I'd be thinking about that for the next week, and it's not going to help me in that situation. Um, you know, if, it's not like he's giving me feedback on what I could have done better, really. He just told me I blew it, and I know I've blown it. Um, so I don't really need to know that, and it's not like I was playing loose and went out there to make an error. Um, that was one, and then there was talking about, you know, being intense, you know, I'm on holiday, my first week of holiday, and we, we've we got like a few weeks off in the off-season. First week, I'm on holiday somewhere. I can't remember where it was. Um, and I, I get up in the night to go to the toilet, and there's a bit of time difference, but it's like three in the morning, right? And I'm using my phone as a light because I want to make my... I remember vividly, I, I don't want to wake my wife up. So I use the phone as a, as a light to go to the toilet. I look at my phone, Eddie Jones, I'm like, get me a fucking away from the guy. <laughs> A week into my flipping, uh, flipping uh, holiday, and I would have been on tour with him, not you know, a few weeks, a couple of weeks before. And he's gone, um, he's gone big, big season next season, come back ready. And I'm thinking, so straight away in my head, I'm thinking, right, what do I need to do? I need to get back into training next week, like, don't want to be lazy, I need to do this, 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 and that, that all that's going on in my head. And I'm, you know, before that, all I'm thinking is, right, I'm at least gonna take a week of not even thinking about rugby, but now I'm thinking about rugby, I'm like. Oh, so it's like that. And then towards the back end, when I was kind of transitioning out out the squad and falling out of favour, <laughs> again, you laugh at it now, like I'm sat. So before Quinn's home games, um, when Paul Gustar came in, he started this thing where we'd go for the pre-match meal before the game at the stadium. So we'd all meet really early, like a few out, you know, three or th- three hours before and have our food all together to, you know, to chat and stuff like that and I guess trick create connection and stuff so we've, we've turned up for our pre-match meal we're eating our pre-match meal and I'm sat next to Jack Clifford who was also in the squad at the time and we both both our phones go off at the same time 
and it's it, and it's and it's Eddie saying basically we're not in the squad, and this is a few hours before Quinn's game, and the squad's going to be announced after that that round of games, so it would have been like after straight after those games or the next day, I think. And I'm thinking, obviously, I'm absolutely gutted. Jack Cliff is gutted. We look at each other and I'm like, you just got the message, yeah? Yeah, got the message. And we're both like, how are we supposed to play now? Like, you do, you get over it. Did you manage to turn that disappointment into anger and then a competitive performance? Or do you think it drained you? I don't think I ever needed that sort of thing anyway, because I had it, any, I, like, it, once I get over the whitewash, it wouldn't, wouldn't matter to me. Like, yeah. You know, I, I guess well, like playing for England, playing for Quinns, probably not as extreme, but it meant everything to me because, you know, I'd grown up there, like Quinns was everything, everything like England was, you know, representing the shirt meant everything, everything was personal. So that didn't, I didn't, I didn't need much else. It would have been there in there a little bit, but it's more like suddenly you're having to use all this energy to get over this massive disappointment alongside a player. It was probably quite nice that I had Jack next to me who had the same thing because you could, if I imagine I'm sat there on my own. But then I had, you know, a couple of coaches have, have found out because usually they find out but don't tell you before the game. For, for Rightly so, they don't tell you that because they get the list of who's going and stuff like that. And then they, they've got win that we've had the message, for, I think through someone else because we're on a table with other people. And they come over and they're like, you, you haven't just had the message. You know, and we're like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they're like, oh. God. So then they're trying to like help you get over this, and it's like, oh, you just don't need it before a game. But it's almost like a toxic culture. We can't search after peak performance to the detriment of psychological performance of the players and, and well-being of people. And I think maybe that's where, well, let's be frank, he's just been fired, hasn't he? So, do you think that was probably the final straw for him? Yeah, look, it's 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 a hard one, look, because. The way I where way I speak about it, you're going to get people like me that didn't exit that well or have certain um, things that you don't like about someone. And then you're going to have people that you know whether they get picked, they've been picked all the time or had a good relationship with him, a different type type of relationship that would would love him. So, you know, this is only my kind of version of it. And there would be people in the, in the current squad that would have liked him, and some that wouldn't that probably don't speak out because of selection or didn't speak out, whatever. We don't know. It's only one my. I'm just one person. It's only my view. Um, but the way I look at it is, when I look at the England team, the current England team now, and put it against the um, you know say the top five teams in the world or even the top three, you can't tell me that they're any more talented than the pool of players that we've got. But then obviously, they're in the last at least two years are not producing what they're what they're capable of doing, what their talent should be producing what some of them or most of them are producing week in week out for their for their teams um so there has to be something not right there and i always kind of especially through looking back through my career it all kind of looks to me as as the environment or the culture there has to be there has to be something with that for me and then also on the flip side i look at the amount of staff turnover there is um and has been in that environment. And look, they get the, the staff. I can tell you, get I would get it way worse than players. Yeah, like hundred percent. And that's why the staff turnover is so high. And I'm surprised the RFU have allowed that to to con- continue for as long as they did because it's kind of like negligence, in my opinion. Um, 
like I would be sat in in a in a physio room, which is the hub of of an environment, right? Anyone who's been in team sport would know that. That's where the banter goes. It's where you go to get all the gossip. You know, that's where you go to get a lift if you're a bit down, or where you know, or you get lifted when you're down, or you lift someone else because it's the hub of the environment in any in any team. And I'd be sat in there after what would have been there, like heads of department meeting where Eddie's talking to, you know, head of physical, head of SNC, head of medical. And you see the head of medical coming in and literally everyone would stop and look at them. And they just look like, why is a sheet would kind of head down, walk to their chair. And you'd be like, you just had the Eddie meeting with Eddie. And they'd just be like, yeah, yeah. and they just, you wouldn't hear from them for about an hour until they've composed themselves, <laughs> come back and yeah, just things like that. And, you know, those are all kind of red flags to me. So I'm surprised that that's been allowed to go on for so long. And I think the RFU have got to take some responsibility and ownership of things. You know, there's been a turnover of players as well, um, constant turnover of players and selection and stuff like that. And it's just, you know, there's enough there's enough messages coming back for, in my opinion, the RFU to have addressed it or done something about it. But it also, it also seems to me there's not it's not been an environment of, ownership responsibility from the RFU down to, to Eddie and he's just been kind of allowed to do what he wants but it's yeah. easy for me to say but that's the sign of a toxic culture mate if you're still here at the end of the episode thanks for joining me Dominic Broad at the Olympic Mindset Podcast brought to you by Pearson the world's learning company I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode and if you did please make sure to spend just a little time to like or subscribe wherever you receive this podcast in order for me to continue to bring it to you completely free of charge. Until next time. And now for inspiration and conversation of a different kind. Pearson the world's learning company, is all about supporting lifelong learning. And, as we all know, one of the best ways to learn is from each other. That's why they've asked over 6,000 teachers and 1,000 students about schools in England today, and what the future should look like. In the brand new Pearson School Report, you'll discover the barriers to learning that we need to break down, and how teachers and students are pioneering change. Whether you're looking for a different perspective or to spark new ideas, there's something in the report for you. Read more at go.pearson.com forward slash the school report and join the conversation on social media using the hashtag Pearson School Report. <laughs>